Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 16th of March 2020 and this is episode 152. On today's programme, Dr Rory Sweetman talks about his recent book on the defence of Trinity College Dublin during the Easter Rising in 1916. This book is published by Four Courts Press. I spoke to Rory over the interweb from his home in New Zealand. Rory, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you developed an interest in the, in the First World War and the Easter Rising? Well, I'm an Irish-born uh, Kiwi, a New Zealander, but um, I was always curious growing up in New Zealand about my native land. So when I got the chance, I went um, to Dublin and I studied history at Trinity for years. And uh, I, I was aware while I was doing a course on the Irish Revolution under David, the late David Fitzpatrick, a, a particularly brilliant lecturer who's a, a great loss to Irish history, uh, that there was a colonial involvement in the defense of Trinity during the Rising. And so ironically, 40 years later, I found myself writing what, um, what basically I see as a corrective to the version of Trinity's own history that um, uh, was commissioned and published um, a book by Tomás Irish uh, about uh, five years ago called Trinity in War and Revolution. So um, I suppose that um, it's, it's a natural thing for me to eventually have written on something that marries my, the land of my birth and my adoption and where I believe that New Zealand has played a tremendously significant role as yet un, unappreciated and, uh, and uh, uh, um, sort of under, uh, less understood than it perhaps should have been. Can you start by telling us where Trinity College is and a bit about its history? Well, it's an amazing uh, 35-acre walled campus smack in the middle of Dublin. And when I was first visiting it as a 15-year-old and then again uh, as a 17-year-old, uh, I I was en- enchanted by it. And, and, and in fact, th- three years later, I, I managed to get myself there as a student. It's It stands – because of its central position, it had to be occupied by the rebels. And the rebels' original plan included – Trinity College as um, one of the, the the several strongholds from which they would run up the flag and then basically dare the so-called British to come and, and blow them out of their, their bunkers. But because the rising was a sort of rather half-baked conspiracy, which was tumbled not by the British, but by the, the Irish volunteers' own leaders, and um, uh, the, the mobilization was countermanded, on Easter Monday, there were there was only one rebel where there should have been five or ten, so that the original plan of occupying Trinity and thus commanding this me- me- central bastion uh, in the middle of the city was uh, was not attempted until later that evening, and that's what I've I've discovered and what I write about in the book that the rebels, having realized later their mistake in not taking Trinity, launched a midnight attack and made a very strong, uh, there was a three hour gun battle, a very uh, determined uh, effort to um, make up for their earlier omission. Rewinding slightly, could you tell us about the Easter Rising, what it was and what it aimed to achieve and whether it achieves its aims? Well, its aim was 
in the minds and the writing of its uh, inceptors in and its leaders to to strike a blow for Irish freedom, uh, to basic, basically for 10, 20 years, uh, the revived IRB, Irish Republican Brotherhood, had been making increasingly bellicose statements and threats and that uh, should home rule, should self-government not be given to Ireland, then there would be, you know, bloody war and the streets would run red with blood. Uh, by Easter 1916, a lot of blood had indeed be shed. And a lot of heroism had been displayed, but not by the Irish Republicans. Uh, by by the, the the by the end of the war, the couple of hundred thousand Irishmen who fought in Irish interests in Khaki in the Great War on the side of the Allies. But so, in a sense, the the challenge was laid down to the rebels. It was almost the last chance uh, in the middle of 1916. Uh, when there was a the, the the hope that Germany was going to win the war, that the Irish rebels decided we strike now, even if we um, we go down in uh, defeat, it will be a glorious defeat. We will earn uh, belligerent status at a subsequent peace conference, and hopefully Germany will win the war, and then we will be able to dictate uh, the terms with the defeated English. It was. A mixture of of courage, bravado, and sheer um, non, uh, reckless nonsense. And by the end of the week, um, three thousand people were dead or severely injured. Two hundred buildings had been destroyed. Du the centre of Dublin was was uh, in ruins, and the whole course of Irish history was changed. So, and in a sense, because the rebels, having lost, they lose the battle, but they. In the end, they, they are seen to win the war because post-war events see a conflict, the Anglo-Irish War to some, the Troubles to others, which results in a form of freedom for 26 of the 32 counties of Ireland and is seen in Ireland now, somewhat erroneously, I believe, as the beginning of a process of, of independence. Um, I believe personally that Home Rule was on the statute book and would have been granted in pretty much the same order in uh, in the post-war period had 1916 not happened, had the rising not happened. But that can be heresy to some Irish nationalists. Now, Trinity College Dublin, what was its geostrategic and tactical significance in the rising? Why did the rebels need to take it? Well, the rebels needed to take it and they recognised that. The British also recognised that they needed to hold it. So as soon as the fighting broke out, the um, the police retreated to their barracks, the unarmed police. The soldiers went to the local barracks and it was left to this bunch of colonial troops who didn't know where the local barracks were, who were who basically were chased or invited into Trinity to provide a defence. Now, the British immediately uh, uh, secured their vital strategic locations, the, the um, government house, the, uh, the Viceroy's house in Phoenix Park, Dublin Castle immediately reinforced, and they they um, established a line of fortifications from Trinity to Kingsbridge Station, thus effectively dividing the rebel forces. Um, Trinity was... It, felt under siege and with rebels in Boland's Mill and Stephen's Green in um, uh, the forecourt, it, 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 um, and especially in Westland Row Station, they, they, they got a sense that they were um, under great threat 
something, as I say, uh, that wasn't reflected in the official history of Trinity, but all the sources, the Trinity sources, give you a strong sense of their uh, their fear and the, the lively realization that it could be, as one professor wrote, the last night of our historic university's existence, because shelling, f- fire could have reduced to, to ashes all the treasures that defined Trinity. I wonder whether you could just tell us about what treasures were inside Trinity. Well, the museum building is a magnificent uh, pile of stone. The the library, of course, the old library is a gallery treasure trove of, of historic manuscripts, not least the Book of Kells, but there are uh, just, it was the history of Ireland. And, and of course, the, the fabric of the college itself, um, a, a shell went over the library in the course of the, uh, an incendiary shell landed in the Provost Garden. Had the rebels taken Trinity, and I demonstrate in my book how easily that could have been achieved, the British uh, commanders, Lowe and Maxwell, both English men, they would not have recognized the, the dangers to Irish culture and heritage. They would have seen the rebels' stronghold, the rebel lair, that they would have destroyed it. They, they very early on in the piece announced, Maxwell, that uh, any building from which rebel fire was detected would be treated as an enemy building and would be destroyed. And had the rebels taken Trinity, then I argue that their outlying strongholds, which would have been overwhelmed rather than ignored by the British, what the, the British troops did was, was uh, basically uh, concentrate on the GPO and shell it into submission. But if you give Trinity to the rebels, then they command all the streets and approaches right down Sackville Street, Dame Street. Um, and they, the, the rebel strongholds or the remnants would have retreated to Trinity. And that's where they would have had their last stand. They wouldn't have surrendered, I argue. And they would mostly have died there. And did Trinity have a cultural and political significance to the rebels? Well, it was. It was the bastion of, of unionism, of Protestantism. It was founded in 1592, as is well known, to educate the, the children of the uh, ascendancy. And while the role had been growing uh, a little bit more Catholic by 1916, I think about 20% of the student body was was Roman Catholic. Um, it was still overwhelmingly uh, a, a Protestant institution. It opposed home rule, and it um, it stood for a cultural uh, West Britishness that was anathema to the rebel leaders. That said, I don't think that they would have consciously courted its destruction. But the military and strategic um, importance of the position was such that when James Connolly realised that it hadn't been taken, uh, famously um, uh, uh, Tomás Macdonough, the rebel commandant who was in charge of uh, the squad that was supposed to take Trinity, uh, said to his lieutenant that he could spare only 20 men. Now he was dealing with, they could have walked into Trinity and taken it. There were a bunch of aged porters armed when they were alerted to the danger with Fenian pikes. The, there was one solitary porter uh, on the on the uh, without any uh, form of defence on the Lincoln Street gate. So Trinity was right for the taking, but by the time they launched an attack, the Anzacs, this bunch of colonial troops, had managed to situate themselves on the West Front buildings, the windows, the roof, and the pavilions, and were able to provide a counterfire 
and a very accurate counterfire, largely because of the six Anzacs, four of them had been through Gallipoli and had were used to being under fire and returning fire. And by curious coincidence, the rebels attacked in the early hours of the 25th of April, 1916, which was the exact anniversary of the landings at um, Sudel Bar and Anzac Cove. So, and this was in the minds of the colonial troops who were defending Trinity. It was it later in their correspondence. So who exactly were these defenders and what were they doing in Dublin? Well, they were there almost accidentally. They were um, on holiday, uh, on convalescent leave. And most, some Irish historians have quizzed me on this and commentators by saying, well, what were they doing there at all? Well, this ignores the fact that Dublin was the second city of the empire. Dublin was also, and Ireland was also an armed camp during this time. The idea that England's difficulty was Ireland's opportunity was probably less true in uh, Easter 1916 than it had been for uh, since since the Napoleonic Wars. And um, they, as a soldier, you could get a return trip from London to Dublin for the for a single fare. So it was an institutionalized, uh, accepted place for recreation and and training. And um, these New Zealanders and six South Africans, uh, two Canadians and one Aussie, uh, had their holiday very much um, interrupted and spoiled, but they served as a vital shield for Trinity at a time when Trinity was otherwise completely empty. It was a bank holiday Monday. Not only were there no officer training corps squads there, there were no students there. And what the Anzacs, because they were labelled Anzacs, the New Zealanders took the lead. Four out of the five of them had rank. They had, were either sergeants or corporals. And the Trinity uh, authorities very quickly recognized this and took and, and ceded authority to them. And they, um, they basically defended the place for 36 hours when it was otherwise defenseless. The most important thing they did was they, they gave the rebels the impression that Trinity was crawling with troops, that it was the armed camp on Monday and Tuesday that it became by Wednesday and Thursday. By, by Friday, there were 16,000 troops quartered in Trinity. On Monday and Tuesday, it was defenseless. And this was readily admitted then and later by the Trinity authorities. So what's your contention? If Trinity had fallen to the rebels, what would be left today? Well, it's hard. I mean, it's counterfactual history, but I have a chapter called What Ifery, which, which, which um, sort of like one domino falls and it hits another domino and it's inescapable that had Trinity been strongly held by the rebels that only artillery would have sufficed to dislodge them and a long siege. Now the British generals were not in the mood for a long siege. They were infuriated, not so much by the rebel tactics, but by the German involvement at, by the landing of arms, that were captured for sure, but there was an unknown dimension. Were German troops going to land? How widespread was this rising? They had to crush it and they had to crush it as soon as possible. Now, the strategic implications in terms of British strategy of rebel occupation of Trinity, as I say, would have meant that the British would have attacked the rebel strongholds from the outside, not as they did, completely ignoring all but the four courts and uh, the GPO, uh, and and um, and basically mopping up the the, the uh, rebel strong, uh, uh, squads after the surrender. 
the, the, the um, remnants would have retreated to Trinity. And I, I believe that um, the artillery bombardment, the destruction that was involved in fortifying buildings, the natural uh, um, uh, attrition. I mean, had the library caught fire, who, who was going to risk their lives to put it out? Um, the, the, it was a fight to the finish of, as far as the rebels were concerned. Pierce did not want to surrender. It was only the the uh, sight of civilians, innocent civilians, being shot down in Moore Street that uh, changed his mind. And he was the one who insisted that all the rebel strongholds um, uh, cease fighting. And this was done very, very reluctantly. From the top of Trinity, from the battlements, from the windows and uh, of Trinity, all the rebels would have seen were the advancing khaki ranks. And this is what they wanted. This They wanted to to make a, an assertion in arms, to, to steal a phrase from the proclamation of the Irish Republic. And the bigger the mess, the better. Uh, Pierce rejoiced that that uh, they had made a, a, a more of a, 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 a sort of an impact than uh, Emmett had managed in 1803. And that was the context in which he he measured the the success or failure of the rising. He He knew that they would die. I think they would have most the leaders would have certainly preferred to have died in combat rather than being executed. And I believe it would have led to the same turn in Irish um, nationalist opinion. Sure, Maxwell wouldn't have been able to execute the leaders, but their, their, um, their, their body, their corpses, their charred corpses would have had to have been disinterred from the ruins of Trinity, which would very rapidly have become a shrine to their memory. And that is the major reason why I believe that Trinity College Dublin risked ceasing to exist because any future educational institution built on that, uh, on the, those premises, I argue would have probably been called Pierce College Dublin or De Valera University. It would have, Trinity would be forgotten in the sense, the same way that All Hallows College, which occupied the same position before Trinity was built, has now been completely forgotten. And how's Trinity remembered its role during the, the uprising? Well, it, it's it's preferred on the whole not to talk about it. So of the three large commissioned histories up until Tomás Irish's book, uh, only a handful of pages dealt with the rising. Tomás Irish's book is, is very interesting, but it's um, ide fix, if you like, is that there was no, there was no story here. There was no defence. The rebels didn't attack, and really the, the defenders only imagined that they defended the college. He says this not once, but half a dozen times. And um, sadly, the rebel sources clearly now state that they attacked Trinity, and the New Zealand sources, which he didn't know about, letters written home by the New Zealand defenders, uh, give the game away. And I have reproduced this material in the appendices to my book, Defending Trinity College Dublin and Raps and the Rising, which I'm hoping will uh, provide the uh, corroborative evidence for some of my more, um, let's say, uh, controversial um, assertions. Finally, Rory, where can people get the book from? Well, I'm, uh, I'm selling it myself, www.rorysweetman.com, and it's also available from Four Courts Press, who've produced a beautiful version of the book with uh, replete with illustrations and uh, maps and I'm I'm uh, I'm extremely delighted with the 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 form that my my two years of research and writing has finally taken published in published uh, in publication Rory thank you very much for your time super tom cheers 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>